0: We are going to be in Psalm 67. Psalm 67. If you are a member of this church, uh, you had a healthy dosing of Psalm 67 when you became a member, as I, one of my favorite Psalms to dig into when talking about the work of the church. <clears throat> I love evangelism. Uh, if you've been around this church for a while, you know that is something that I love to do in my, my own time. It's something that I do my best to bring all of you with me whenever I can. Whenever we head downtown, oftentimes we'll go to Millennium Park, we'll go to Grant Park, and we'll just go strike up conversations with people on the street. And one of my hearts as a pastor is to equip you to step into the place where has been over the long haul of Christian history the primary way where people have come to know Jesus Christ is through sharing the gospel. We have to speak the words of the gospel among those who God has placed us around. I've learned a number of lessons in evangelism over the years. Uh, Number one is that evangelism, like many things, uh, there's a courage hurdle to it, like a little bubble you have to get over. Uh, I remember the very first time I went out sharing the gospel, I think I shared this with you, I got so nervous, I got lockjaw. I couldn't, I I literally, my my mouth would not open, and I was with some older college students at the time, and and they saw what was going on and just let me be quiet in the the back. Uh, There's a courage hurdle to anything new that we do in life. Right? Everything takes a, a little bit of, okay, I'm gonna muscle up in the Lord. I'm gonna step into this thing that God called me into. Some of you, I, I do believe, <clears throat> have callings on your life to be evangelists, uh, but you've not yet done the work to get over that courage hurdle. And I, as a church, I wanna invite you into that. It's pretty sweet. And I also, when another lesson I've learned is that uh, you never take someone's word for it right away. When they tell you that they are a Christian, if you ask that question, are you a follower of Christ? Here's what I mean by that. Not that we're supposed to doubt people, but what I mean by that is, most of the time I'm talking to folks about Jesus on the streets, I ask, are you, are, what religion do you adhere to? Are, are you spiritual at all? They'll, they might say, oh yes, I'm Christian. Then I'll follow up with a question like this. Oh, can you tell me about Jesus? Who is he? Very rarely I would say, like, under 10% of the time that someone tells me they're a Christian, do I hear anything remotely true about who Jesus is when I ask them that question? Nothing very rarely do I hear that he's the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. Very rarely do I hear that he's the King of Kings. When I ask what the good news of the Bible is, very rarely do I hear the salvation story of Jesus's substitutionary atonement on the cross for us. What I'm saying is, often, we have to probe further. We don't just take it for granted if they say they're a follower of Christ. We, We keep going. Now, when I get into these conversations, there's there's one question I, I love to ask when someone tells me they're a Christian, and that's this: Can you tell me how being a follower of Jesus has changed your life? Oftentimes, I'll get one of two responses. Uh, one, uh, immediately, some folks will go to negative experiences they've had with Christianity. These are people who are saying they're followers of Christ. They'll say, "Either my parents were overwhelming." And or I was part of a church that really uh, just wounded me in the past. And those things kill me, right? Like, like in, the, in the sense, if they're part of a, a, a place of wounding uh, that a church hurt them, that hurts me. And I love being able to step in and share the way it was supposed to be done. But the other thing I oftentimes hear is that following Jesus has literally made no impact on their life. It's just a thing they say about themselves, So let me ask you the same question. Can you tell me what impact following Jesus has made on your life? Are you any different? Has following Jesus not only changed the way you spend your time, but has it changed your affections? And I mean like like you go deep into who am I? What do I desire in this world? What, what, what are my ambitions and my motivations? What am, I, what am I getting after? Not just where do I spend my time and what do I spend my time doing, but what am I actually about as a person? Have you been changed at that level by Jesus? Has being a Christian actually gone all the way down to the deepest recesses of your core of who you are, your heart, and then changed you from the inside out so the things you do actually are an overflow of a heart changed in the name of Christ? Or, are you like those folks I've been describing when I, share my, when, I, when I share Jesus on the streets that really have the honesty to say, you know, following Jesus hasn't changed me all that much. It's had no impact. We're on week three, as I said, of this vision series, and uh, we've spent two weeks being pretty bold. Uh, and what I mean by that is we've touched on some subjects that hopefully have made some people angry in the room. That means I'm doing my job as a preacher. I'm trying to get after our core ambitions. I'm trying to get after what we're about as a church. And I'm trying to mobilize God's army to do the work we've been called to in a city that's falling apart. And the, this city, more than pretty much any city that I'm aware of, and I've been a missionary in an in a unreached people group overseas, this city, along with the, that city that I was living in before, needs warriors of the faith not who are gonna go out with swords and axes, but who are equipped with the word of God to be salt and light in this city. And so we have this vision statement that we wanna proclaim the gospel to all people, all people, all kinds of people, all corners of the city of people, every people, until there is no place left. We wanna get after that work, and then we've got this mission. How we do that? Well, there's four core components to it. Hopefully you've heard this many times now. Well, we make disciples, that means we go out and we help people cross the line. And actually you move from you were not a follower of Jesus, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, and then you became a follower of Christ and you were born again into a new living hope, making disciples. How do we do that? We go evangelize. And, I, and then number two, we equip the saints. So we make disciples, equip the saints. That's where, where me and, and, and as a church, we're coming alongside each other with actual programming, actual organization as a church to make sure you know how to do these things. So we're not just warriors kind of loosely, you know, you ever, if you've ever seen like a, in a movie a warrior who doesn't know how to use a sword, he's a danger to himself and everyone around him. We want you to be master swordsmen who know how to use this word of God to be effective in the work God's called you to. We want to send him out. And that's what we talked about last week, getting into the nooks and the crannies of the city. What are we getting after? And if you remember last week, we talked about four core areas, fatherlessness, abortion, education, and homelessness. Those are the four things we're pushing hard as a location here. And then we spread far and wide. And what that means is that we need incredible partners like GRIP we need partners in the city because there's way too much work for any one church or any one ministry to do in this city. And so we labor together. We're about the big C church in this, in this place. We're not about just seeing how many people we can sit in the seats. We're about seeing the big C church in Chicago grow and multiply and new ministries launched off. We've spoken a lot about what we want to get after and do. And I want to, this third sermon to get after the deeper heart issues. I want to get after the affections of your heart. I want to ask the question, are your affections in line with God's affections? And I I want to be honest with you, the more I ask that question of myself, I continue to find whole areas of my life where they're not. And so this is not like, oh yeah, I've been a follower of Christ for a long time, I get the drill. I'm, I'm asking you right now, if this vision is going to have any legs to it at all, it cannot just be about what we do, it's gotta be about the heart underneath, the, the, the foundations and the presuppositions upon which our life is built that then drive the work we do. So I wanna, I wanna highlight today from Psalm 67 two mindset shifts, two affection changes that I believe we need as a church. <clears throat> number one, affection change number one. Your blessings have a God-ordained purpose. Your blessings have a God-ordained purpose. Psalm 67, let's read verses one and two. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Did you see the so that, the that 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 begins verse two? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us Yes, I want all of that. Yes. Why? That, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Now, if, if verse one sounds familiar, it means you're a good student of the Old Testament. That comes out in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. That's the Aaronic blessing where the high priest Aaron, the very first high priest, came down after the Ten Commandments were given, and he stated this blessing over the nation Israel. And that blessing, we find it popping up all through the Bible, both Old and New Testament. We see that this was a wonderful blessing that was to be the type of life and lifestyle that someone who is a child of God should expect. It's the blessing of being a follower of Christ. May God bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the writer of the psalm adjusts that ironic blessing and makes it personal. May God be gracious to us. Not that this blessing is just this kind of general statement. It's very personal. When the Lord pours out blessing, it's a very personal pouring out of the blessing into your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you and when he says blessing, we've talked about this many times, the Lord's blessings come in many, many forms. And I don't want to discount, sometimes the Lord pours abundant blessings into your life in ways that you can measure with tangibles, right? He, he, maybe, maybe the Lord has poured out blessings in your life of having resources at your disposal, having networks at your disposal, having a family that loves you, parents that are around in your life. Maybe the Lord has overwhelmingly blessed you with finances. Maybe the Lord has blessed you with the ability to get a degree and a mind that can think rightly and and can process scripture and remember things. Maybe the Lord's blessed you with skill sets and with the ability to articulate or with the ability to write. The Lord's blessings come in many different ways. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. You know, that language, that's always made me think of this imagery of the warm sun. I'm headed on vacation with my wife this week coming up. And I'm excited to get out of the snow and we are going to be somewhere where the sun is going to be shining warm. And this makes me think about that. It's, the, it's like would the blessing of the Lord smother you like the warm sun on your skin? Would it just be such that you can't escape the presence of the goodness of the Lord coming down on you, and when you recognize it as a follower of Christ, something in your heart beats correctly. It's like you've come into alignment with that which you were made for as the blessing of the Lord just comes over your life. Now, as I say that, I I wanna, again, I'm getting to the affections. Have you ever experienced that? See, it's so easy in our modern day for Christianity to become, you know, it's, it's just something you do. It's something you think about and you forget the warm sun blessing of having your life in alignment with the will of God and feeling the greatness of it. Have you ever felt it? Do you ever just have moments where you pull the car to the side because you've been lost in worship and you just, it's good. It's good. You think about the gospel? You ever come in church on a Sunday and and you didn't even expect it. Maybe you were caught off guard, but suddenly you're singing worship songs and you are lost. You're just, you're lost in the blessing of the Lord. I think many in this church have experienced that because I know you. And I think many have never experienced it. So today is really important because that blessing is for you. He made it personal. Make your face to shine upon us. First person, plural pronoun. It's for us. So that your ways might be known among the nations. What's the purpose of it? If it's that good, why would God be so good to some people? Why would, he, why would he make his face to shine upon us? So that your way might be known among the nations. So that those who are far from you, who have never heard of you, in every country, in every place, in every corner of the city of Chicago, why have you been blessed? So that they can get the same blessing. Why has he poured out abundant blessing in your life so that you can just rest and and just know the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to it, and that purpose does not end with you in this life. That purpose so it can flow through you, go to the nation, so that every single person on this planet can hear and have an opportunity to know about the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's the key language, historic language. You've been blessed. Someone finish it for me. You've been blessed to be A blessing. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Your blessings have a God ordained purpose. As a church that has, can I be blunt? Many resources. I know a lot of pastors in the city of Chicago that would love to have a 20th of the resources and the network that this church has. And I'm not even talking about Park Community Church across the city of Chicago, I mean this room. I know a lot of pastors that would pray for what, like, I'm not picking individual people, I'm sorry, but that small group over there has at their disposal in terms of ability to get work done, in terms of education, finances, network, abilities. And they're doing great work in the city, but we've been blessed. Why? To be blessing. That theme is woven all through scripture. You cannot read a book of the Bible without understanding that a person of God, a child of God is blessed, yes, to be a blessing. Let's go back, Abraham, out of Babel. You know the story of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is called out of the nations in order to be a blessing to the nations. He gets the goodness of God. God makes this covenant with Abraham, which by the way, if you're a Christian, you've been grafted into Abraham's family. All of those promises are your promises, Christian. And we read in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, this is the first book of the Bible. Go from your country, your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why was Abraham blessed? Why did God choose him? Why did God make his face to shine upon him? Why did God make a covenant with him and then give him children in his old age when him and his wife weren't able to have kids? Why was God so good to Abraham? So that he would be a blessing to the nations. Deuteronomy chapter four, I love this one. Why why was the law given? You ever think about this? Why did God give the law to the Israelites? 10 commandments, the case laws of Genesis chapter or of Exodus 21 through 22, all the case law. Why was it all given? Well, for starters, it was so that we would know how to live morally and ethically before a holy God, that there would be a restraint on sin and when we know what God's expectations of us and we would have a recognizable way, a way of recognizing sin in our life. God gave us the law, but it didn't end there. Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded you, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all the statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five to eight. What was that additional purpose of the law? That when God's people obeyed God's law and society flourished as a result, the nations that didn't have the high ethical standard of the law of God written in the Bible would look in on that nation and say, we need to replicate that in our own nation. Oh, that came from Elohim, the God of the Bible. We must follow him so that we can understand the heart behind the law and take that back to our nation. Why did God bless the Israelites with the law? So that they could be a blessing to the nations. Mindset shift number one. Every blessing in your life is God ordained to bless others. Now, here we are, church. We've got this vision, and it's a good vision. And, and honestly, the, the spirit of God's moving in this place, we, we were, I'm just blown away. I'm blown away. This week, we had a handful of folks out at the abortion clinic. I told you about it. That's one of the things we do. Handful of folks joining in person, going out and doing that. More folks lining up to go out evangelizing, asking, when are you going out next? And my answer is, it's really cold, but we're gonna do it. <laughs> like, we're gonna get some more dates on the schedule right now to go out to Millennium Park, right? The, the Lord is moving in powerful ways, but if the affections aren't changed, if we don't work this one out, as, a, as if I could just say as a whole church in a very privileged, blessed way, if we don't work this one out, it, it, the, the steam runs out because you get burned out because your affections didn't change. Mindset shift number two, affection change number two. We have to have a God-like affection to establish Christ's kingdom on this earth. What does that mean? We must find in the deep inner recesses of our heart a God-like affection to establish Christ's kingdom on this earth. There is a modern hypocrisy in the evangelical church that separates worship from mission. And it's, about, it's hypocrisy, and you can't find it in Scripture. Mission is worship. Those who worship are on mission. And when you create this dualistic church, this kind of uh, this, this hypocritical church, where it's possible to be a follower of Christ that worships God, that is exemplified as a worship of God, but has almost no missional component to what they're doing in their life, No sacrifice of time, no sacrifice of their money, no sacrifice of their investment and who they're pouring their life into, almost no non-believers in their life whatsoever. You have to ask the question, is the worship forming what worship is supposed to form in you? Because here's what's supposed to happen. As you worship, the goal is to bring your heart into alignment with God's, to bring your mind into alignment with God's, to bring your affections into alignment with God's. And so if it's just worship and praise of God, but there's no actual affection change taking place in the heart, it could be a form of idolatry, right? Because what are we worshiping? Because if that which we worship is not changing the heart, really what we're worshiping is a version of a religion that's really comfy and satisfies the emotional needs we have to gather with other people and sing. But worship ought to stir the heart to drive the will of the affections. See, See, when you understand God, when you're walking with God, it starts to bubble out of you and you can't change the fact that your affections are being changed. The things you love are the things that God loves. And over time, what happens, and I've shared this story. Here's a funny way of sharing it. I used to love 70s rock. I play electric guitar Angus Young from ACDC, I can play a lot of his (laughs) riffs on the guitar. I loved 70s rock. One day I was preaching. I came home from a sermon. I'm driving down Roosevelt. Windows are down. It was a great day, and I got Highway to Hell blasting on my window. (laughs) I'm on a highway, right? I got the window down, and I look over the car next to me, and it's funny until I realize it's not funny. I look over the car next to me, and I suddenly go, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it it was that moment. And here's the thing. God had been laying on my heart for a few years at that point. You gotta cut it. It needs to get cut. And I didn't wanna do it. I did not wanna do it until finally he just ripped it out of my life. Ripped it out. And, And that see, what happens is you begin to get this conviction in your heart. You begin to say, something's changing. My affections are different. I, what do I, I need? I, I want to be, like, be God-like in this. I want to love the things that God, and then slowly you find yourself loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates. I never want to sing that song again and finish the sentence in a, other than a sermon. I just gave a part of it here, right? I don't ever want those words to come out of my mouth because I don't want anyone to be on that highway. I want to save people from that highway, And it is a highway. Big picture. Look at this psalm with me. Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Four things we see from this psalmist. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This psalm is known as the missionary psalm, and I've used this to preach global messages before. Why? Look at it. It's got, I mean, the, the nations are woven through this. One way you know that God's getting a hold of you is when your desire to see the unreached people groups of the globe come to know christ it is developing in you and it's not just something your preacher touches on in a handful of sermons throughout a year but it's something that you look up and you're studying and you got a copy of operation world is that what it's called operation world yes you got a copy of operation world on your desk because it's you go through and it's got the nations and what god's doing in them and you're interested in it Four things we see. The psalmist has a desire for all the peoples of the earth to know God, verse two, that your way may be known on the earth. Does this, are your affections changed in this way? When you see the unreached peoples of our city of Chicago, your unreached neighbors, is there a, a, an affection in you that says, I I, want, I genuinely want them to know the Lord? It, it's it's. It's not just something I say, like my heart burns and yearns for it. These are the foundations. These are the presuppositions that maintain a ministry. He wanted them to know God. Number two, a desire for the nations to praise God. Verse three, let the peoples praise thee, right? Do you have a vision, a Revelation chapter seven vision for how good life is when the peoples praise God? Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, there's this vision of the peoples gathered before the throne of God, sing praises to God. And 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 my question is, does that like make your heart beat faster? And if it does, what should be taking place is you're, you're, you're moving in your life to participate in seeing that change. Who doesn't know the Lord around you? I want them not only to know him but to praise him. Make him Lord of their life. Number three, a desire for the nations to enjoy God. That's verse four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. See, following God is the greatest, is the greatest joy there is on this planet being a son and a daughter of the king, being a follower of Jesus, knowing the gospel has forgiven you for all of your sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you, there is no greater joy There's no greater joy. That is the the ultimate in this life of walking in the fullness of the gospel and knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the pinnacle. That's the great joy we have in this life. And every other happiness, every other joy finds its fullness as a shadow in the substance of the fullness of the gospel that we have as followers of Christ. And this psalmist doesn't just want to store that, right? He's blessed to be a blessing. He wants the unreached people groups around him to enjoy God to the degree that he does. Number four, a desire for the nations to fear God. Verse seven, that all the ends of the earth will fear him. They don't just want... He doesn't just want the nations to know a general, like generally, there is a God that exists. He wants them to know God on his terms, who he is. That there is a God that is full of love and full of justice, and he will have justice for every sin and every crime ever committed on this planet. They want him to have a reverence for the holiness of God. That they would see God and have their eyes open and say, How could I even, how could I have ever presumed? to take a breath without an awareness that the God over all creation is over it all. And I robbed him of his glory by denying him the praise he was owed for that breath. He, they want, he wants the nations to have a proper fear of the Lord. See, this verse, these verses, this psalm, is showing us that, that to follow God is to have the affections brought into alignment with God's affections. And in a busy world, that is like the one we're living in right now, where we are distracted by a thousand things. I confessed with our prayer group this morning that I find myself grumbling a lot recently. I sent the entire church, I sent all of our members a sermon on contentment by an old Puritan a while ago because the Lord had used it tremendously in my life. Because I find myself grumbling. What am I grumbling about? I'm grumbling about schools. I'm grumbling about COVID. I'm grumbling about masks. I'm grumbling about uh, restaurant policies. I'm, right? You're you there with me, right? like we're we're grumbling we're we're murmurers I am, and I am confessing, I'm repenting, I'm in a process of repenting before the Lord because I want my affections to be brought in alignment with God's, and I don't want to be overwhelmed by that which I grumble by. I want to be overwhelmed by the blessings I've received in the gospel, and then I want my eyes to see the world the way Jesus does so that I might be an ambassador for Christ. That was the first sermon in this vision statement, that we've been called to something much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than our little issues that we face. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great Puritan preachers from American history, had a. uh, he was part of what was called the Great Awakening in American history. It took took place shortly before the Civil War. The Lord used this Great Awakening to bring the gospel to 80% of the people that lived in uh, New England at the time. It was incredible. He used Jonathan Edwards mightily as well as a few other men at the time. Jonathan Edwards wrote wrote in his diary what took place the day the, the Awakening launched out in his church. So let me explain this. Sometimes God moves in such a way that we call it revival. And what revival is, is when the Spirit of God is moving among a people so drastically, it's like a tsunami coming over a city. No one escapes it. And the Spirit of God is bringing people to Jesus, right, left, and center. And, and, and you can't explain it other than you're just watching a tsunami of the Holy Spirit go over the city, and then you realize, I'm a Christian. I got some work to do equipping everyone that just became a follower of Christ. That's happened multiple times in this country. The Great Awakening was one of them. Jonathan Edwards record what happened in his, in his congregation and all around him. And he's got this great part in his journal where he records what happened in his wife's life. In his wife's life. Now, she was already a follower of Christ, but as this great awakening took place, something new was stirred up in her. This is a bit of a longer quote. Let me read it to you. An extraordinary sense of the awful majesty, greatness, and holiness of God, a sense of the glorious, unsearchable, unerring wisdom of God and his works, a sweet rejoicing of soul at the thoughts of God, being infinitely and unchangeably happy, and an exalting gladness of heart that God is self sufficient. And infinitely above all dependence and reigns over all and does his will with absolute and uncontrollable power and sovereignty. And with a universal benevolence to mankind, with a longing as it were to embrace the whole world in the arms of pity and love. She had a vehement and constant desire for the setting up of Christ's kingdom through the earth. Let me read that sentence again. She had a vehement and constant desire for the setting up of Christ's kingdom through the earth as a kingdom of holiness purity love peace and happiness to mankind the strength was very often taken away with longings that others might love god more this is this when god takes over this is what happens she was overwhelmed with a desire for that others might love god more and serve god better and have more of his comfortable presence a compassionate love towards fellow creatures A daily sensible doing and suffering everything for God. Eating, working, sleeping, and bearing pain and trouble for God. And doing all as the service of love with a continual uninterrupted cheerfulness, peace, and joy. And he finishes by saying, oh, how good is it to work for God in the daytime and at night to lie down under his smiles. So if you notice as I read that quote, the first half was a personal awareness of my affections have been changed to just bask in the ironic blessing of God's holiness over me. And then the second half was his his wife's heart moving as an ambassador for Christ and and her affections being changed and wanted everyone around her to know the blessing that she had. That's what I want to see take place in this church. And, and, and I trust and I believe God can do it the same way he's done it in the past. We're, we're very good. You know, when I give a call to something and say, this needs to get done, right? Like, we, we need to get after it. We're typically very, we're pretty good at it. Like, for example, I'll just put a call out there right now. We need 20 more volunteers in our children's ministry, okay? Right? Now, I've done that many times before. And oftentimes, when I'll say something like that, we'll, we'll have about four or five people sign up, which isn't bad. That's not a bad start. That's not a knock on us as a church. It's just that's typically what happens. We need 20 to sustain the ministry we have and open up an additional classroom to, to bring in the youngest kids, which we have that classroom still closed right now. You'll notice a number of the youngest kids in, are in this room with us. And, and so we need 20 more. Now, here's what happens if I just say we need 20 more, and you feel guilty that you should do it, We'll have a handful of sign up, and then eventually the steam will fade, and many of those who signed up will eventually back out after four or five months. But if this takes place, see, if the affections and the heart starts to beat like God's thump, 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 right? And you are just Beating like God beats. Then it sustains. Then you move. Because I got a bunch of kids over there who have not made decisions to trust in Jesus yet and the closest mission field you have is on the other side of that wall. Thump, thump, thump for God's heart. See, when you know the Lord, and he's taken control of you, and the Spirit's moving, you beat for the things that God beats for, and we know what he beats for because it's all through scripture. Vision, 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 and unless the heart's beating for what God beats for, it all fades away real quickly, as quick as we established it. He's calling you to more, he's inviting you into more, he's calling you to be the church. You are in battle, church militant. That's what the reformers called it. You know why? Because they knew that, the, that they were living in a perverse and broken generation and that they were the church, and the answer to the perversion and the brokenness of the generation they were living in was the church being the church and establishing the right way to do it, calling out sin where they saw it and not letting brokenness and perversion get away without the church saying, let me show you how God does it. And then the nations look in on the way God does it and they say, surely God is among them. Deuteronomy chapter four. See, courage boldness, sustaining ministry, church militant mentality, that thing that built nations, if you don't get the heart in line with God's heart, it's all just doing out of guilt and obligation. God wants your heart. Now, how, how, do you, how do you get there? Like, like, how do we put that into practice? There, there's a great, wonderful book by a man named Richard Lovelace, called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. I'm taking my staff, our staff team, through an abbreviated version of that book. But in that book, he lays out what he calls the preconditions for revival. What are the things that if if you don't get these things in order, no no actual movement of the spirit is gonna sustain generationally, right? So what are those things that you gotta get these things in order as preconditions before you can even talk about equipping the church and, and going out and doing these things? And he lays out, Two key preconditions. Number one, there must be a firm belief in the awareness of God's holiness. Now, when he talks about the awareness of God's holiness, he lays out two things. Number one, God's justice, and number two, his love. And you can keep that up behind me as I go through this. Number two, you have to have an awareness of the depth of sin, both in yourself and in the world. And Richard Lovelace says, if you you lay this foundation, And if your people genuinely, truly own this as their heart's affections, as understanding the biblical worldview, then when awakening comes, then when the spirit moves, it's got tracks to run on. An awareness of God's holiness. Now, we speak about this often. An awareness of God's holiness, both in his justice and his love. God is sovereign over all of creation. He is to be feared over all of creation. He is not to be tampered with. And his justice is such that there is justice for sin. When I say that I've been grumbling recently, I realize that the cost of that grumbling was Jesus on the cross. And that's not a light thing. Have you ever taken time to reflect on the crucifixion? And, and, the, and what he endured for you? for the slightest of our sins that would separate us from God for all eternity. Justice is justice because justice originates with God. Psalm 89, justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. We have a definition of justice because it emanates from God. Any definition of justice that comes from another place besides the throne of God is not justice. But we have justice and he will have justice for sin. He is God and judgment will come. And on that day, you will either be in Christ or you will be on your own. And if you are on your own, that day will not go well for you because you have committed sins before a holy God. He has justice and he has love. And the two places where that that justice and that love come into a perfect, perfect just explosion is on the cross where God's justice and God's love are put together. God's justice is poured out on one man. Rather than making you pay the debt for your own sin, he places it all on the shoulders of Jesus Christ as a substitute for you. And his love then pours out to you as a free gift of grace. It says if you place your faith in Jesus, you no longer have to carry the debt of your sin. You place your faith in Jesus, by grace you will be saved not by any works you could ever do, not because you, you mustered up the faith, not because you went and you volunteered in the right places, but simply because Jesus has poured his love out to you. His justice and love are met at the cross. That's his holiness. But then we got to have an understanding of the depth of sin, both in ourselves as well as in society. In ourselves, hopefully you're taking the time, church, to actually do the hard work of hating the sin that you see in yourself. And if any of you say you've already got it all out of you, you haven't been doing the homework of prayer. God's got more work to do to root out sin in your life. No one is without sin we live in this bizarre universe right now where we've taken the Bible and, and then we've created a, a new Bible for society, a secular Bible. And the secular Bible reads like this. The, the, the most important thing in this world is the authentic you. You can trace this back to Sigmund Freud. The most important thing in this life is, is the most authentic you. And we got to do all the Sigmund Freudian stuff to understand who you really are at your inner being and and cast off all the things that hold you down from being the authentic you. Because if you can just get to the authentic you, then you'll find joy. Then you'll find happiness. That's Freud's Bible. He was an atheist who hated Christian religion, and he had a drastically perverted way of looking at the world. I'll let you look that up on your own time. But when you see the scriptures, you realize it's not the authentic you that brings life. You see, the authentic you is one that's fully corrupted by sin in all your ways of thinking. And what we need is not salvation from within, finding the authentic you. What we need is salvation from Christ on the cross, receiving some salvation from outside of us. Because on our own, we're on a highway to hell. But when Christ gets a hold of you, he secured heaven for all eternity. And then we hate sin in the world. We, we begin to hate sin in ourselves. and We genuinely hate it. We, 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 we moan over it, but then we receive the gospel and we know that God is good even in the midst of our sin. And then we see sin in the world. We don't need to look too far to find that. Over 800 murders in Chicago last year. A society and a school system that is normalizing hypersexuality in our youth and elementary students. I... I, I Have you wept over that yet? Because I send those news articles to you almost every week. I mean, a society and a school system that's incentivizing and promoting transgender ideology, which has led to a drastic rise in the number of suicides and suicide attempts among adults and youth. See, I think what happens is we get callous to these news articles and we begin to think that that's normal. And, and we need to hate sin in society so much that we realize we are the answer to step into the brokenness. This is why Richard Lovelace is saying you have to have a foundation of holiness of God and then an awareness of sin. Satanic statues of demonic, pedophiliac, false gods set up in state legislators, Illinois. Did you see that news article? See, did, did you hate that? Did did you think it was funny when you saw the statue of the goat in the Illinois State Legislature? That's a pedophiliac, satanic symbol. I don't know if you knew that. In Illinois State Legislature. See, did you hate it? Because what happens is we see so many of these news articles that we just become jaded to it. You gotta hate it. See, when you get the foundations right, when you get the foundations, then, then the tracks are laid down, and then the spirit moves, and the list goes on and on and on. We don't, we don't have to turn the news articles that far to see society is full of sin, we're full of sin, the gospel is good, and the spirit of God can move so powerfully at any second. I want to make sure the foundation's laid right. Church vision, right? Where are we going? We've got this wonderful vision of what God's doing, and I, I want to stir us today, my heart, my heart today is that you would see the heart of God, that every blessing you have in your life, it has a purpose to it. You're you're not here on accident. you got a purpose. you got a reason. And it's not so you can just sit in the blessings and just enjoy them personally. Yes, they're to enjoy. Yes, God is good. Yes, all of that. But they have a purpose. Go. Move. But do it in such a way that you see your heart coming into alignment with that of God's. And as you move, you will experience something that I believe this church has yet to experience. I believe you'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit behind your ministry in a way that you, just leaves you breathless, catching up with what God's doing. Pray with me. Father, when we talk about revival and we talk about awakenings, these things are too big for us. There are men whose lives I've read of, who they prayed their entire life, decades for revival to break out. And it turned out that their life, their purpose of their life was to lay the foundation of prayer for the next generation after them to experience the revival. Revival comes on your time, not ours. We cannot cajole you into moving in certain ways. We simply want to honor the king. We simply want to do this the right way. And Lord, we want to be that church militant again, like those reformers who are not content to let society decay around them because they knew they had that which could support a better way of doing things. We want to step into brokenness. We want to love like Christ. We want to be so humble and grace-filled that anyone who looks at the people of Jesus from this church would just say, there's something going on in that place. God, whatever you got to do in the conviction of heart today, would you do it?